Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. I'm so pleased to have James R. Ben here at the store. This is one of my favorite series, and I've been privileged to read it in real time, all the way from Billy Boyle, the very first one, up to this one called Proud Sorrows, which has a wonderful plot. It's also our historical mystery book of the month. So Thank you for that. You're welcome, entirely. But I would like to start out by just saying a word about an author that we much miss, Ann Perry, who died in April. And she was always way ahead in turning in her books. So the new Alina Standish book came out yesterday, I think it was. Patrick, you, we have it here. Um, and it's possible there's going to be another Ann Perry book somewhere, but that may be it. But the reason I mention it is that we were... We were very close for a long time. Patrick was very fond of her. Bill was very fond of her. And her executor, winding up her estate, gave me Anne's earrings. So I am actually wearing oh. Anne's earrings. And I, don't know, I thought it would be appropriate for a British historical mm -hmm. mystery if I were here sitting with Anne Perry's earrings. So there we are. I have other ones, but these seem to be the best for the job. So Absolutely. I know. It's hard to it's hard to lose. But Jim and I were talking at dinner. It's hard to lose an author, but for you readers, it's also really hard to lose an author because the characters go with it, uh, him or her. So um, it's always nice in a really long-running series if the author um, has kind of a plan for... Remember Agatha Christie, who put the last Poirot in a vault, yep. you know, so that whenever whenever she was gone, I can't remember. Does anybody remember the title of The Last Poirot? Patrick, you can look it up on your phone. I know. That the Last Hercule Poirot. She left She left it in a... Was that the postern of fate, or am I mixing that up? I can't remember. But anyway, she knew that readers would like to have a final Poirot, although he had so little personal life that, you know, I'm not too sure that it was, you know, necessary. It worked out that way. Anyway, um, Billy Boyle has a long way to go because fortunately, he's only progressed for a very well. We're in 1944, right? We're at the end of 1944. Yep. So he's been at this for two plus years, which is a lot of war to go through. But there's still Wait, two plus years. May 42. Is that Billy Boyle? Yeah, that, that's when Billy. For Boyle some reason, I thought it was earlier. I thought it was in '41, but we didn't really come into the war. Right. It would have just been after Pearl Harbor and getting into right. the army. So it, w it was May when Eisenhower was sent over. Um, so it's been about two and a half okay. years almost. Um, and uh, I was telling Barbara that uh, whenever people would ask me, <coughs> how, do you know if you're, how you're going to end the series? I would say, well, don't worry about it. There's, there's so much war to go. But now it's, it's winding down. So I'm finding ways to have stories that take place like within a week. And then, and then miraculously, the following week, there's a new adventure. Um, so hopefully, we'll be able to keep it going. But you know that that works for historical fiction because theoretically everybody's dead. So you know if you're only aging them a week or two at a time, right. it hardly matters. Right. Yeah. But um, and also, the way you've written this series, we get to go to a lot of different war theaters, mm -hmm. and the stories. Um, do you shape the stories for the theater, or do you decide on the story and pick the place? Uh, this place picked itself um, because I knew I wanted to do something a little different. I, I, I tried to modulate the stories so that there's not two stories that are very similar, to like two battlefield stories that are, are very much alike. And I decided it was time to give these guys a break and let them have leave 
because um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, so they have leave, but so where to send them? Um, and I had to go back to the first Billy Boyle to see where I had placed, um, you know, if, if, if you know the series, you know who I'm talking about, uh, Sir Richard Seaton, Diana's uh, father, where his estate is, because I had just picked a place out of the map, from the map, uh, back in 2004 when I wrote it. Um, but it was in Norfolk, uh, and it coincidentally uh, happened to be in the stomping grounds of uh, Dorothy L. Sayers and Lord Peter Whimsey and the Nine Tailors. It's the same territory around uh, um, uh, the Wash, uh, an inlet. Um, in, off it's of not really Coast. an inlet. It's a gigantic it's a, it's chunk. An estuary. I yeah, think. yeah, it is, a, but it's a complex estuary with shifting sands and very dangerous to cross. If you know your British history, you will know as we go through this book, um, part of what goes on when he keeps referencing the wash. So read the book and then look it up. <laughs> Don't do it the other way around or you'll spoil stuff. So that's a case of the setting really starting to yeah. tell the story because that's, if it made sense for them to go there to have a, you know, a peaceful vacation in a quiet English village and we all know what happens. When, when you go to one of those. Um, so there was I a have body. to say, you know, it's the plus of British history that 800 years can pass and, you know, and you can still have relevance in the 20th century right. to something that happened in the 13th century. Right, you gotta love that about yeah. Europe as opposed to, but we could do it here, except that um, the nations that were here didn't have Diff, you know, great written records and other things, but we're finding we're finding a lot more of it. There's a lot of books coming out here um, about the history of this continent and all from the Native Americans' point of view, which is quite a different perspective than the you know Western point of view, so to speak. But anyway, you're in Norfolk, which has a very nice geography, mm -hmm. and the village that um, Sir Richard Seaton's estate is near. There are high cliffs looking over the Wash, mm -hmm. right? Right. And I had actually been uh, attracted to a, a, a true story about an American fighter plane that had crashed off the coast of Wales. The pilot had escaped, and the, the plane would disappear for years, but the, the shifting sands and the tides would reveal it. And the plane was called the Maid of Harlech. Uh, so you can still, uh, on some occasions, the Maid of Harlech, this fighter plane, will appear uh, in the water. The sands will reveal it, and then the tides will take it back out. So I just thought the idea of that of disappearing aircraft um, was very interesting. So I just moved that to the to the Norfolk coast and this on the Wash, which is a, a, a narrow estuary where the tides roar in and roar out, and um, uh, it's a very interesting uh, geographic uh, anomaly, uh, and it's the kind of place where a plane would appear and disappear. So we have a German bomber uh, that has a mysterious cargo discovered. So if the plane reappears, the question is, are there any bodies or by now skeletons on board? And if there are, whose might they be, right? Yeah, right. But you can already tell from this that Billy's leave in Norfolk is not gonna actually just be R&R, &R, right? And I thought that was a little cruel. But nonetheless, it would be hard to write a really interesting book if he was just loafing right, around yeah, in Norfolk. Just going to the pub and having a Right, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you, you already <laughs> knew. Um, 
And then, of course, the other question in a long-running series like yours is when there's a subcast that, um, you know, accrues to the series about, you know, so are any other people going to go on leave or are they going to somehow be summoned to the place where Billy's on leave? Well, uh, Kaz, uh, Billy's uh, partner and friend, uh, is there because his sister is convalescing at Seton Manor. Uh, so if you've read the past few books, you know that Kaz's sister was uh, released from a, a concentration camp and spirited out of uh, uh, Nazi-occupied Europe after medical experiments were performed on her. So she's at Seton Manor with a nurse attending to her. And I just want to tell a quick little story about this nurse's name. Um, when I was at the university... Sorry, but I just assumed Patrick turned it off before a blade comes loose and <laughs> assassinates us. I was wondering what that was. It's, it's the fan or a very large bug, but, um, but I think, yeah. So when I was a, a sophomore at the University of Connecticut, I went uh, one Christmas season to uh, Constitution Plaza in Hartford, which is a, an open um, walkway above the streets with stores and stuff. And you can look down into the office windows. And I saw a, um, a cleaning woman working. It, it was at night, the lights were on, and she was all alone cleaning. And I just thought, she just looked so lonely. And, and I, I named her Agnes Day for a lamb of God, Agnes Day. And I said, someday I'm going to write a story about Agnes Day. So Agnes Day in this book is not a cleaning lady. She's the nurse. But I finally got to have a character named Agnes Day, and she appears in this book. It's a really interesting or name origin, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, good for you. So how, you're not spelling Day, D-E-I. No, no. It's D-A-Y. Right, but still. But the inference is there. I got it. Right, so Sir Richard Seaton, tell us a little bit about him, because we haven't seen a ton of him so far in the series. No, he's um, a one-armed sea captain whose arm went down with his ship in the First World War, uh, and he has a shadowy secret um, job with British intelligence. Even I don't know exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> But it's been alluded to over time. So, but in this book, he's mainly there uh, to serve as host to uh, Billy and Diana and Angelica uh, and Agnes Day, who is living at the house to care for her. Um, but there is some, I don't want to get into a lot of spoilers, but there's a mysterious body found in this bomber when they dread take it out, uh, lift it, hoist it out of the water. Uh, and Sir Richard becomes a suspect. He in does. A murder, not. Not, Although not an crew, no, but he's an improbable suspect because of the one arm and all the rest of it. Although he could be, he could be, yeah. yeah. Well, so naturally, anybody associated with Sir Richard has to rally around. He and does, but Billy is in a, a tough spot because if he rallies around him too much, right. he'll be seen as you know cutting a few favors. So he's got to conduct an investigation um, that will uh, be appropriate. Uh, and, and not uh, give Sir Richard a free pass. So a little bit of tension there. Billy ends up getting kicked out of the house for a while. And you know, it's never so, easy in a quiet English village. No. So it's kind of an Agatha Christie setting. Well, I, I, I had a little fun thinking in those terms. Sure. And, uh, and doing, you know, the, the standard sort of English uh, village mystery with a cast of characters and, and things slowly get revealed about them that, uh, uh, that, in a way that I found interesting. So in kind of classic older British mystery, there's often a bumbling police d 
detective inspector, um, which takes our man on the job, in this case, Billy, you know, to um, kind of either work with him or ignore him, but given a mandate to solve the crime. But Billy gets an official mandate, doesn't he? He does. He's, uh, there is in this uh, town um, a top secret facility. What the, the British government took over a lot of stately homes and manors in the countryside. Um, and in this manor, uh, Marston Hall, is a, a facility for uh, high-level German prisoners of war. Uh, and the story that I really wanted to tell, in addition to all this, is about the Ritchie boys. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of them. Pro probably not. Um, it's, it's not very well known, but the Ritchie boys were a group of uh, mainly German and Austrian Jews who had come to this country in the 1930s as young kids, grew up speaking English, but also had, were native German speakers. And they were recruited as interrogators because the best way to interrogate somebody is in their own language. Uh, and, and knowing their, not just knowing their language, but knowing their customs and their background. So there are a group of Ritchie boys uh, at this top secret facility, and their existence is a secret. Um, the reason a lot of people don't know about them today is these were the guys who were told after the war, now don't say anything about what you did in the war, because it's top secret. And they said, okay. Uh, and they never really told their story. Uh, so it's just come out recently about this. So. Um, they produced a lot of actual intelligence uh, interrogating German prisoners of war because they were able to just get into their heads so well. Um, and that's the secret that Billy is really brought in to protect uh, and find out who the, the actual killer is. So when the Sands reveal the bomber, mm -hmm. the bomb, sorry, the plane, yeah. um, and locals go down to bring it up, so to speak, who are the bodies that are found on the plane? Well, this isn't much of a spoiler, really, because it happens early on. Uh, so they hoist this plane out of the water, uh, and they find the body of, uh, I think, the bombardier and a gunner. But an arm hanging out the window uh, ha is dressed in a British Army uniform. And the owner of Marston Hall had gone missing about the time this plane crashed. So the mystery is, how did this British officer end up in and a crashed German bomber. And just to give you a, a little insight into my process, when I wrote that, I had no idea how to answer that question. I, I enjoy presenting myself with the same puzzle that I'm presenting Billy, because I figure he's got to figure it out. I, sh I should figure it out too. Um, so I had no idea how, and I, I tried to populate this village with a cast of characters that would, at some point, grate on each other in a way that would reveal to me who the killer was. Um, so the beginning of this book is a little different in that it's a kind of a prologue written in the third person. Wait, you said who the killer was, but you know we don't know for sure that the British officer, if indeed it is a British officer, not just somebody dressed in a British that, officer's that's, that's uniform, which is yeah. a possibility. That, that's one we don't know if he stuff. just died in the crash. Yeah at the outset. And then if it is the British officer, a real one in his British officer's uniform, where's the German pilot? Mm -hmm. Or did the British officer fly the plane in from Germany? You know, I mean, there's a number, this, there's a yeah. number of really interesting questions here. And complicating all that is the fact that Sandringham House is, is the royal residence that's owned by whoever is the current King or Queen of England is 12 miles down the coast. So then the worry, now they, the royals didn't go there, 
during the war because it was right on the coast. It would have been an easy target for a commando raid. But actually they did. They did sneak in there and they stayed in the cottages surrounding the, the big uh, ornate um, Sandringham House. So that's another flashpoint here to worry about. Is, is this a, a hit on the Right. On the now, I've family. actually been to Sandringham House and it's, it's not a palace at all. It's just kind of a, a country home with a lot of bedrooms <coughs> where everybody got up to mischief until possibly, <laughs> well, even including perhaps the present royal family. Um, but, it, you know, it's not all that imposing, and it does have a lot of property around it. You may remember that towards the end of his life, Prince Philip was arrested for driving without a license on the grounds of Sandringham House, and I think he you know, had an accident or something, and they worked out that he, you know, was piloting cars around. So the queen had to take over and drive, that, yeah. right, while he was there. I love that. Yeah, I thought it was so great that um, that he was still doing that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, it's very much a, a country house and um, a retreat, you know, for them. And you, in your story, you do have a few royals kind of sneaking up there. Right. They, uh, Princess Elizabeth and uh, Margaret actually did uh, dig potatoes there. They had a big garden, you know, victory garden kind of thing. Uh, so they did uh, sneak in there and stay. No, I mean, they could do whatever they wanted, I guess. But uh, uh, there is a record of her digging potatoes. So Billy gets a little sight of uh, Princess uh, Elizabeth. Right. So some of the locals you're dealing with are worried about security mm -hmm. at Sandringham House. It wouldn't be that tough mm -hmm. for, as you point out, a German commando raid, you know, to, to light there. Um, so that's part of the excitement of right. what's going on there. But let's talk about the treasure. Okay. <laughs> so um, King John, bad King John. Um, I have a friend who's a, a into British history and takes tours of British castles, and he try, is adamant that King John really wasn't all that bad. But this is the King John from Robin Hood, you know, really bad guy. The evil um, brother of Richard the Lionheart, uh, right? Yeah. We know that. Um, but anyway, uh, Richard, uh, so this wash, it's like a notch. If you can, actually, in the book, there's a map. So buy the book. Yeah, by the, the way, map. there is an excellent map. Uh, I forgot to tell you and, that. You might want to look it up. When the tides are out, it, it's like a, a marshland that you can walk over, and there are tracks. Uh, the local guides would know how to, because it was a massive shortcut, if you can imagine, because they would have to go way around uh, the estuary. And he was in a hurry to get somewhere, I forget where, and uh, he, he decided to go when the tide was out and with his baggage train, with his treasure. And in those days, the kings of England would take their treasure with them, their crown jewels, they just wouldn't leave them at home. Um, but unfortunately, the tide came in quicker than they expected. Uh, and uh, dozens and dozens of knights and servants and carts of treasure were washed away by the incoming tide. Um, no one's ever found it. People are still hunting for it. Um, and you can imagine that if somebody back in the 1940s had a, a glimmer of an idea where it might be, uh, that would be something maybe worth killing for. Who knows? There's no one place it would be. I mean, the truth is it would have to be scattered, of, you know, yeah. all over from the action of the, the water. No. Well, now now they don't have to look it up. I was saying you'd have to go home and look it up, but it's true. Um, it's, a, it's a legendary 
um, treasure. And, you know, England's still um, spewing up Viking hordes and other right. stuff, you know. To, um, I've been to the British Museum and where they have some really great displays of um, Viking and other treasures that have been dug up over the years. And, um, you know, they're still, what what are they called? The guys that go out there with the, like Geiger. Detectorists. The Detectorists, right. In fact, there's even a TV series yeah. called The Detectorists where they, you know, take out their metal detecting things and sweep over the land. But it's very complicated. Did you look into, you know, if you find treasure, the ownership of it is an extremely complicated yeah. subject. I, I would bet, and given that these were the crown jewels of England, that the current monarchs would have something to say about who owns well, them. Yeah, if it's found, they would they would own it, you know. But although, as I said to Jim, they might pay a finder's fee, but um, there's some real questions if you do find property like that, whether it belongs to the crown, whether it belongs to... Um, it's hard to claim it personally. Right. And in reality, I, I'm betting if after being an instant expert in this, the, the, the tides just wash this stuff yeah. way, way out to sea. Yeah, <clears throat> Our friend Clive Custer has spent, or did spend before he died, at least a decade looking for the Bonhomme Richard, which is John Paul Jones' ship mm -hmm. that foundered off the coast of England. It was higher up. It was off Whidbey or somewhere. No, it was off, uh, what is it, Flamborough Head, I think it is, which is so. a yep. chunk of land sticking out. But anyway, out into the North Sea. Never found it, despite the absolute best um, equipment. It was a wooden ship, so the odds are good, they finally concluded, um, that it, it was washed away. This pull of the sea was such that it's scattered all over, and maybe the wood by now, you know, is kind of largely rotted, and there wasn't enough metal to recover. But I think you're right. I think that whatever, and while we're talking treasure, it probably wasn't that big. I mean, England wasn't a very rich country in the 13th century, right. so it's probably like a crown and, you know, assorted things. That it, it probably wasn't a lot. And they enumerated, like, it was also his plates, you know, silver plates, right. and, you know, household stuff. So it wasn't right. all just... So it's probably just somewhere scattered or right. disappeared into the North Sea. But it's a great thought. It's, it, it's, it's a good motive mm -hmm. for murder. So the questions that you have to answer, now that you set this up, are why was the British guy, if he was a British guy, why was he in a plane with two dead German... Um, people on a mission, um, and then where's the pilot? If, if the British guy is authentic, where's the German pilot? And why did nobody ever find him or rate a fuss? Because most of the time when people floundered, um, they turned themselves in or they were found and they became prisoners of war. So, so Billy does have to track down all the bodies that right. The, you know, it wasn't only one bomber crashing; there were lots of them crashing all the time in 1942. So he has to go through that process. Um, and also mixed into this is, you know, a lot of people probably, if you've watched *Peaky Blinders*, certainly you, you know about um, uh, Mosley and the British mm. Union of Fascists. The black shirts. Yeah, the black shirts. In this book, they're the moderates, because we have groups like the Right Club. British uh, Union of Imperialists, who were formed because they thought the black shirts were too easy on the Jews and the dark-skinned 
Commonwealth people. Uh, so the Right Club uh, was a really ultra-fascist, uh, racist uh, uh, group that uh, at this time in the war in 1944, they had all been imprisoned as soon as, uh, as war was declared. So Mosley and his bunch and all these other groups were imprisoned. And by 1944, the British government figured, well, the danger of invasion is over. We can let these guys out. But the, the right club people went right back to work. Um, and they were, uh, they had a lot of schemes going on. Um, and they're the ones that I, I was fascinated by because I never knew about them. I never knew that there were people that thought that Mosley was, was too nice. <laughs> to, there's a serious white supremacist yeah. Um, yeah. thing going on, and, and quite a few of the British really were Nazi sympathizers, and you know we don't think about them. Um, just in the same way that France has an historic um, anti-Semitic, very cruel history, and um, you know nobody was without without a taint in all of this mix. But yeah, you're right. The I often wondered why they let any of them out until the war was over. No, they, they, they did let them, because uh, they, they weren't charged with anything. They were just thrown in prison under some Defense of the Realm Act. So they were never actually tried and found guilty. So it wasn't that different than the Japanese internment camps here, was it? it? Essentially, no. It was just a government Kind action. of the same yeah. thing. And they thought it was fine to let them go. Right. Jim's colleague, Naomi Hirahara, from the same publisher, wrote a brilliant book last year called Clark and Division about the internment of the Japanese in California and the West um, in Chicago, which is why it's called Clark and Division. And then in her new book, The Consequences of the War Being Over and these people who'd been totally uprooted from their homes moving back to Los Angeles and trying to put their lives back together. Um, so, you know, it happened here too. It isn't just um, Britain having... Internal groups, and then of course we know what's going on today. So you know it's like there we are. Right. So there's an awful lot going on in this book. Yep. It's every under the skin of every quiet English village. There's always a lot going on. So Diana is not actually at her father's estate when the book opens. The plan right. is for her to come down from London and join Billy right. for his quote leave, which you just right. trashed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she she does get there eventually. She's held up by um, uh, in in the last book she was in France distributing gold to uh, members of the French resistance that had helped Allied pilots and soldiers escape, um, people whose family members were killed, uh, and she's uh, in trouble with uh, people in the government who think she was giving money to communists, so they want to hold her accountable for that. So she has a bit of bureaucratic trouble, but. We may revisit that. Why not? Yeah. And unfortunately, her sister was imprisoned with Kaz's sister. It was at Ravensbrook? Uh, Ravensbrook. Right. And so the sister, Diana's sister, died um, from whatever happened to her in the camp. And those atrocities, nobody really even wants to contemplate, but were terrible. So, you know, so we have Kaz, his wounded sister, Sir Richard. Diana has a brother. Does he come into this story? Not, not in the story. Um, he's been sort of like the brother that I kind of forgot about for a number of books, but he's going to be in, in next year's book. Um, 
So he'll, he'll be back in the picture, but he's not there on leave. So we also have a, a housekeeper that uh, I asked um, uh, 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 for permission from uh, Charles Todd to name her uh, Mrs. Rutledge after Ian Rutledge, because I love his, his Ian Rutledge books. So he said, fine. He, he even charted out, you know, he that could be his aunt or his cousin. Uh, I said, well, no, we won't get into that. But uh, So the housekeeper, Mrs. Rutledge, uh, wields a mean shotgun when, when she has to. So uh, she's in the Gosh, mix I as well. I haven't thought of that. It could be Ian Rutledge's widow if yeah. he ends up dying of his World War One. Yeah. Wow, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Right, think about that. So one character we haven't talked about, because you do have real people in these books, mm -hmm. that's one of my very favorite people, mm -hmm. Ian Carmichael. Yeah. I, you know, I was really entranced by the notion of just setting this book in the same setting as the Nine Tailors, the Dorothy L. Sayers uh, story. Which is many people's favorite. Uh, it's great. Yeah. This is the bell ringing book, if you don't know it. Um, this is a mystery that um, depends upon the English art of bell ringing, which is extremely complicated. And I actually went to visit the church in Norfolk where, yeah. in theory, this yeah. takes place. Yeah. It, it takes incredible strength and stamina to be a bell yeah, ringer. If you've ever tried to pull a church bell, it's not easy. And, yeah. and you have to keep it up yeah. because, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not anything anybody undertakes lightly. Mm -hmm. And there's a like a captain, and yeah. you know there's the whole rehearsal yeah. thing that goes on there. It's if you ever read it, the Nine Tailors. If you have not read the yeah, Dorothy yeah. Sayers, you really should. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it makes the least sense of her. Well, none of her plots made a lot of sense, but um, that wasn't why you read Dorothy Sayers. Um, she even got the mushrooms wrong in the book where somebody died of mushroom poisoning. She got the wrong mushroom, which <laughs> I've always kind of loved. Um, Unlike Christie, I mean, Agatha Christie worked in, um, in what's the word I want, in pharmacy in the war. So she was actually very well acquainted with, isn't that terrible? I know it, we need to get it fixed. Um, she was very well acquainted with poisons and how they worked, yeah. but Dorothy Sayers was not. And I've often wondered if she ever actually did any bell ringing. Well, she, her father was the rector at the or victor right. at that church and they did a lot of bell ringing there so she was exposed to it so she at least sort of knew how it worked right so i was just happy to be in that setting right um and then i just for some reason i i started looking into um Ian Carmichael, who played Lord Peter Whimsey in the masterpiece mystery series all the way up to the four books about dorothy vane so he was in the early ones but he was not Edward Petheridge took over right. the series for the four books, right. including Gaudy Night um, about Harriet Vane. Right. And we were agreeing that Ian Carmichael was not really a romantic hero. And Edward Petheridge was a better Lord Peter, I think, when it came to those. But he was brilliant as the young and sort of right. ass, because right. he called himself a silly right. ass. Um, he was kind of perfect for those, wasn't he? And it turns out that the actor, Ian Carmichael, um, joined the army and became a tank commander, uh, was engaged in combat in, in France and Holland, uh, and was actually the, the head, I won't get too far, but he was the head of a tank squadron that would go ahead of the soldiers and explode mines in the minefields with these big flails of, of, of chains that would explode the mines. And they would have to be the first going into battle at five miles an hour. So, I mean, he, he fought a real war up close and personal. And I thought, well, maybe <laughs> Captain 
Carmichael was sent to this top secret facility because the Ritchie boys are interrogating a German prisoner of war who knows about the defenses in Holland that they're going to go through. So, uh, sure, that'll work. So, we have Ian Carmichael, who at this point has just given up his acting career for the Army, is an old boyfriend kind of, sort of, of Diana, so there's a little jealousy with Billy there. Um, and even though Ian Carmichael was the son of an optician from York, he still uh, came across to me as a very a bon vivant, uh, you know, kind of upper class, a uh, little bit of a twit, because that's how he wrote his two memoirs. He, he wrote them in that voice. It was almost like Lord Peter. So um, I had a lot of fun with him. So he's on stage for a while, uh, helping in the investigation and, and working with the Ritchie boys to get this information that's needed for an upcoming offensive. And I thought it was just fun to show what he really did in the war, because it's not something you ever hear about. And if you ever see a picture, a stage picture of Ian Carmichael, his hand is always in his pocket because he lost a finger when a tank hatch slammed down on it. And he always hid that. So watch next time you see a picture of him. So I have a very different version of Ian Carmichael. In 1986, I was in York and I was staying in the Bootham Bar Hotel, which is it's not even a hotel, it's more like a B&B, &B. and the point of staying there was that you were high above the city and you were right next to York Minster. So when the bells would ring and you would be above the city of York, you could sort of pretend you were still <laughs> medieval, whatever. And right down the road was the Royal York Theater. And when I got there, Ian Carmichael was playing in Pride and Prejudice. So I couldn't resist that. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I was able to get a ticket. And so I went to see the production. And it was the most interesting staging. You, many of you may have seen like the movie versions of Pride and Prejudice, which are wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so the way they did it at the Royal York Theater, Ian Carmichael was Mr. Bennett. And he sat throughout the entire thing in a chair in the middle of his library where, you know, and all of the all of the rest of the cast revolved around him, and he would actually quote entire passages of the book. Wow. You know that was yeah. his job. Mm -hmm. It was a fascinating production, but he was so different mm -hmm. from Lord Peter, and I I kept having this kind of hard time, <laughs> you know, because the uh, the Lord Peter things had already played in 1986 because sure. yep. they were fairly old, and yep. yep. you know, also. He was actually a very gifted actor. Yeah, he was. Yeah. But I didn't realize he had that great war um, experience. You know, Jimmy Stewart was a, um, played a major role in World War II. Um, he was, a, I'm trying to remember, was he a pilot? I think so. Oh, yeah, bomber Something pilot. like that, yeah. 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 There were a number of actors who did very brave things, and then there were a number of actors like John Wayne, who is everybody's hero, who actually wasn't heroic in World War II, but there you go. I can't remember all that because I was born in 1940, so, Clark you know. Gable it's, was a gunner on a B-17. Yeah, he was, yeah. And a lot of people, you know, and all they, they, if they often entertained the troops, even if they weren't in combat, that kind of thing. So it's nice that you brought in. Remember Glenn Miller, who played for the and went down in the channel, and nobody ever found him. Yeah. So there were, you know, American entertainers who also played some kind of a role in yeah. the war. That's an interesting thought. You haven't, you haven't. I wonder when he went down. You haven't worked Glenn Miller in yet. No, no. There's a thought. Yeah. Right. All right. 
Right. Or the Duke of Devonshire and what's that went down and opened up the dukedom for he was married to Kathleen Kennedy, remember? Oh and okay. he also yep, yep, yep. he was the pilot who yep. also died and yep. eventually we got um the last of the Mitford sisters, Deborah, married the Duke of the younger brother and when, when the older one died in the war. Then his brother moved up to become the Duke, and Deborah, mm -hmm. of the six Mitford sisters, is the only one that actually ended up with a, well, not the only one, because Nancy and, who's the other one that was the author? Oh, boy. Nancy, Nancy Mitford, who moved, isn't she the one that, no, she's the one that wrote about, Jessica was, Des Jessica the one that moved to California, I think, and became a novelist, and Nancy wrote biographies of, like, Louis the Fourteenth. Oh, yeah. I think that's it. Too many Mitford sisters to keep Six. And one of them married Oswald, Oswald Mosley, the black shirt guy yeah, that we were right. talking about. Um, and that was extremely. And then one of them went to Berlin because she was in love with Hitler right. and eventually shot herself right. when Hitler didn't reciprocate. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were like the quintessential bizarre English aristocratic family of the 1930s, <laughs> right? Books have been written about yep. them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you still have time to work one sure. of them. Yeah into this whole saga. <laughs> so you really enjoy bringing in real people, don't you? With what? You enjoy bringing in real people as well as your fictional I people. Do because it, w when I discover that, it's like the intersection of uh, reality or my reality with these stories. And I, I can't believe that uh, this all could have happened. So it just makes it real for me. Uh, and uh, I'll just briefly say next year's book, I, I think I went one better than Ian Carmichael. David Niven is in it. And he was another war hero, wasn't he? he and you was, still have Ian Fleming in the wings. Yeah, he was a, a, a. He had been in the British Army and was an officer before his acting career. And he got out in the 30s, became a, an actor, went to California, was doing well. And when war was declared, the British Embassy ordered all the actors in um, California to stay there and make propaganda films for the, to support the British war effort. He just went back and, and joined up and uh, didn't get in trouble for it. Uh, Winston Churchill actually said, uh, you would have been despicable if you had not done that, young man. Mm -hmm. um, but he was trained as a commando. He, was, uh, he worked with some of uh, uh, Montgomery's intelligence people, was on the front lines. So I, I just, I had to put him in. And he was the kind of character that almost took over the book. I had to really kick him off stage for a while because he was he was so much fun to write. I, I just, uh, the, there's some great quotes that during the Battle of the Bulge, he was stopped and asked for a password, you know, because they were concerned about Germans dressed as Americans. And here's this Englishman driving around the lines. And he, he, he said, well, well, chaps, I don't know the password, but I did start with Betty Grable in a bachelor, bachelor father or something like that. So, um, he had a quick wit, whether he actually said them or not, or made it all up afterwards, I don't know, but it's, it's great stuff. So he was a lot of fun to write. He was, he was a really charming guy, yeah. and, and, and came back to Hollywood and continued to have yeah. a, a yeah. significant career. Yeah. yeah. So, questions from any of you? We've probably said more than we actually should <laughs> about Proud Zero, but um, what would you like to ask Jim? You know, there was a, a, a book came out, um, our, our Sons, Our Fathers, I think. I just saw it on a shelf, and it was about the Ritchie boys. It was a German filmmaker made a film in 2004 
uh, called the Ritchie Boys uh, and, and told their story. And they l literally kept their mouth shut all these decades. Now there's still, there's some survivors who are going to schools and, and describing what, what went, what's went on in their work. And it really, the detail is incredible. I mean, th they really got into the heads of the Germans and messed with them significantly. Um, and some of them were killed, and some of them were on the front lines uh, interrogating captured prisoners on the front lines. During the Battle of the Bulge, they were overrun, and the Germans who were then had been freed pointed them out and said, these Jews over here are, are from Berlin, and um, they were executed. So uh, it's, it's good their story is finally being told. And that's, it, they were trained at Camp Ritchie, as were a lot of people, so the term Ritchie boys came to after the war, during the war, nobody called them anything. They were just there. Any questions? Uh, Not North Africa, no, because I read enough accounts of what it was like that I, flies and no beer <laughs> didn't cut it. But um, I, yes, I visited sites in Sicily and Italy and. Uh, France and uh, all across England, uh, where and it really helps to uh, to get the lay of the land, the feel of what it's really like. Um, so about to ramp up some travel time now that it's sort of safe to go. Uh, it's been helpful. Yes. If, if I could come up with a, a, a workable scenario, this was one where I realized I had missed the opportunity to put together Billy Boyle from Boston and the Kennedys from Jack Kennedy from Boston. Um, and I found a gap in my earlier book where there was a two or three months I, that I had skipped, which was just at the time of PT-109 and Jack Kennedy. So I was able to put together a scenario that worked. Uh, one of the strengths, I think, of this series is that it tells the story of the war chronologically, but it's also a weakness because if I've missed something, it, it, it's hard to have a, to go back and say, oh, it was all a dream, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I would love to if, if uh, and it may be that at the end of the war, as the war is still going on, uh, but the war in the Pacific was so different, I mean, so brutal and uh, yeah, right. yeah, no, thanks but, a lot. but you know, he could go to Singapore or Shanghai right. or even Burma because Burma was still British. Right. Yeah. Um, and Billy could be sent on some kind of a mission to Asia, yeah. you know, towards the end or it post war. It would have to be more, uh, yeah, uh, not on the island fighting because the, right. no, there was no, no. No, no room for a murder mystery on, on those islands. But uh, no, it was just slaughter. Yeah. Unless you're, unless you're Stephen Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> Who's 47 Samurai is my personal favorite, Stephen Hunter, and it starts on one of the Japanese islands, and it's brilliant. But no, I didn't think that Billy, but you know, there's a lot of, we were talking at dinner, there's a lot, people didn't get demobbed as soon as the war was over. There were people who stayed in the service and did all kinds of things after the war. The, the world didn't just sort itself out right away, and Billy could easily be, um, you know, detailed to, because a lot of Asia was British, you know, British outposts, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, um, 
Malaysia, I think, was still British. Yeah. And certainly Burma was still um, in India. Yeah. So, you know, there is an opportunity perhaps for him yeah. to go in those directions. And you have My visited. dad was stationed in India, so. Yeah. Well, have Harold been, you know. In, in terms of actual plots, it, they just reveal themselves. The more I, I look and, and keep an eye out for things, but the overall arc is really the story of the effect of war on people, Billy in particular, but also all, all the people around him. And I think that's the theme I try to carry through, that there's an effect that, that war has. Uh, and it shows in Billy and in his I think he's a deeper character. Uh, he's gone through some uh, severe emotional trauma, uh, and he has to. He just just has to. And I'm trying to show the effect on all the people grouped around him as well. And that's one of the things I liked about this book is I could take a whole village and show how the war has affected individual people, this microcosm of, of uh, an English village. So that, that, that to me is the overarching uh, story. Uh, and where it'll end, I'm, I'm not quite sure. One of the things that I love about the series is it underlines just how global the whole conflict is, or was, rather, because we travel with Billy, you know, through so many different... Mm -hmm. I loved your book about the Vatican. I hadn't really thought about how, you know, how difficult it was with this, you know, little ecclesiastical state in the middle of occupied Italy and how dangerous it was, and how it was just a matter of few, a few feet right. that I separated learned a lot. people. I, I, I had a lot of assumptions going into that book, and I learned a lot from it. I know. I mean, the role of Pope Pius is difficult to assess. You know, was he actually a sympathizer or enabler, or was he, knowing how vulnerable it all was, was he doing his best to keep everybody surviving? You know, it's very difficult yeah. to know. Yep. So I do think, you know, that. The theater, the size of the war, the involvement of so many people whose lives were disrupted. And, you know, the Official Secrets Act, which people took seriously then before social media, when it would be impossible. <laughs> yeah. but, um, you know, you said that people didn't talk about um, the Ritchie boys and all, but people were really serious when they took that. Um, the, the women signed that worked the act. Fletchley, right. Never talked about it. Right. Yeah. So um, that made a difference. Did you have a question, sir? Sure. Never yeah. talked about it. No. Nope. That's right. Or fought on Iwo Jima or something. No, there wasn't much attention paid to something like PTSD then. And in the First World War, um, people, the guys were ashamed and people often made fun of them as cowards instead of recognizing how traumatized they were by the trenches. And well, that's the, the Inspector Rutledge series, I think, right. is, is great in the. Um, Hamish is yeah. really PTSD. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not a real person. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's my little homage to. No, it's okay to to the Ian Rutledge series. I I I wanted to show that and and show the effect in another war. Right? Yeah, I miss Carolyn. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But Charles Sweetheart. is good. Charles is, Charles is good, but it was uh, one of those things where two people, it was the mother and son, two people writing together were better than two people writing separately. And mm-hmm. and there used to be an amazing British, they wrote as Manning Coles. They were a man and a woman, and they were not related. I think they were neighbors or something. But they wrote some of the really great World War II um, spy. They had a, a hero called Tommy Hamilton who was kind of a an MI5 or 6 guy, and um, always had kind of a humorous approach. But um, some of their books were just fabulous. And then one of them died, and and it just didn't work. You know, after that, the one that was left just couldn't keep up the voice. So, you know, there we are. It happens. Is there anybody else? Well, in that case, thank you. Patrick, are there any questions from the audience? Sorry, I forgot to ask you. Oh, thank you. Me too. I've read it in real time and absolutely loved it. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you, virtual audience, for watching it. Thank you, live audience, for coming. And I do have a kind of unusual giveaway this evening. I don't know. Did we did we did we do numbers tonight? No, we didn't. All right. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to come up with a key question. So um, one thing I have to give away because I haven't seen one for so long is that um, I picked up an Ellery Queen mystery magazine when I was at VoucherCon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's a relic. Um, so we have that, and then I brought this funny thing. I don't know where I got it, but this is a teacup that has a place. I love it because it's sort of Imperial England, right? The Raj and the the head of the elephants where you put the tea bag, while, you know, <laughs> so it doesn't sit. So, what what do we want to do? Do you want to ask a question? Whoever can answer it wins. Oh boy, um, one of the or the other. Uh, I'm drawing a complete blank. Uh, <laughs> How many books ha- are in the Billy Ball series? Eighteen. He's right. Would you like the mystery magazine or the teacup? Oh, great. <laughs> I love this teacup. I wanted it to go to a happy home. <laughs> there you go. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me think. Maybe a location. Oh, no. Who's who's the missing character? We've talked about Kaz and we've talked about Billy. Who's... Ah, all right. <laughs> well done. Pass this back to this lady, right? I didn't even have to finish that one, did I? And you'll be pleased to know that he does manage to make his way to the village. Yep. So um, it would be hard to leave him out at this and point. And he brings food, surprisingly. Yeah. I think, you know, he pl- he played a really big role in the Russian one, you know, with the, um, what were they called, the Night Angels? Uh, the, uh, night Witches, night thank you. Not Angels, but um, Witches, right? So Big Mike was a pivotal character in that, right? Yep. Right. So, well, thank you, Jim. It was wonderful to see you again. Thank, thank you for you having me. For coming. If you'd like to get your book signed, Jim can just stay right where he is, and you can take a picture or whatever you'd like. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds 
will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.